Hello. Hello. Welcome to release. Work it out. Jam on it. Jam on it. Work it out. <laughs> it's 1933, <laughs> goddammit. Yeah, and we're using colorful catchphrases from the era. <laughs> oh my god, what were some catchphrases? We don't even know. What's some good 1933 slang? I don't know. I don't either. We'll have to look it up later. I'm trying to think even from our films. It's like I'm not catching any slang. It's like formal, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Razzmatazz. I don't even, uh, I don't know. Sure. Maybe. maybe. I feel like that's a thing. <laughs> maybe. Not that we've witnessed it, but that's something. Old yeah. Old-timey slang. Yeah. I don't, not a lot of razzmatazz, as you would expect that phrase in these movies. No, we're not doing musicals. Not yet. Not yet, but we have, you know, Busby Berkeley on the brain, or at least I do. Yeah. I'm feeling like we're going to get into that. Never have watched any. and I Never. I mean, just have seen, like, scenes. The kaleidoscope. Yeah. Iconic shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Didn't, like, accidentally, just while I was doing research, had on, like, YouTube videos in the background. A lot of Beyonce. I've been a little Beyonce obsessed right now. Just sort of back, back around, but did see the... Uh, her performance at the Oscars, which was like oh. a song from King Richard. And it okay. was outdoors and everything was like tennis ball green hmm. and very Busby Berkeley. Hell yeah. So, I mean, I feel like he continues to influence. Well, she also is incredibly influenced by all of that stuff too like she had her fossey phase oh yeah she seems like her reference library goes very deep which yeah. is why she can look so fresh because it's like right it's not one thing oh yeah love her love her uh, yep we'll talk about that later yeah. sneak peek oh yeah there you go um so this week we're talking about two films one is a, as always, uh, one is a Japanese gangster film uh, from a very acclaimed director, though this was a lost film, till the 70s. Uh, and the other is considered pre-code, um, though there is some censorship involved there. But it was privately financed, um, and it was made in Astoria. Um, so they're, like, going back. Emperor from, Jones? Yeah. Oh. So yeah, the first, the Japanese gangster film being Dragnet Girl and the pre-code privately financed Paul Robeson made him a leading man. The first black leading man is The Emperor Jones. Those are our two films right. this week. Um, first, first, first black leading man, at least in America. So should I set the stage? Set the stage. Okay. So in the U.S., it's. Arguably jam on the, it. Yeah, I'll jam on it. Uh, in the U.S., it's arguably the worst year of the Depression. The employment rate is just under 25% at this point. So that I say this to like, kind of contextualize like the gangster films and like crime being attractive because like in difficult e- economic times, one of the few ways to get ahead. We're in Prohibition era, though Prohibition's about to end. 
is like criminal activities, like finding other ways to make money. Uh, the economic system is failing, but the anti-establishment vibe is very much like in vogue um, in a way. So we don't know like whether these gangster films are reflecting the times or if they're like sort of enhancing this viewpoint, but yeah, I think it's probably both. Um, so yeah, prohibition. There's is a little end. bit of escapism. I'll yeah, like that later. if I could make some money, yeah, uh, like these cool guys, and this is the way to make money because no one's making money mm-hmm. the way that we're expected to make money. So like, fuck, like this looks good. Um, but of course, with every like rise in one viewpoint, often there's this backlash. So that's when like. I won't get into the Hayes Code because I think next year is going to be big for that. Um, And we've talked about it, but we've laid the groundwork where, like, when the Hayes Code was, like, some suggestions for Hollywood so that, like, the government doesn't get involved with censorship. Uh, But it's going to become strictly enforced in 1934. So this is, like, kind of, like, the last hurrah of, like, this pre-code era. Um, And we're seeing this with, like... We'll see this more with the gangster films, but right now, like, they're off and popping, like, at the cinema. Like, it's very much this pro-gangster yeah. attitude. Um, so, yeah, that's, like, I feel like that's a big one. And especially because we're talking about gangster films, though not American gangster films. It's, like, that's kind of, like, the vibe in the 30s around, like, why this was so appealing. Um which maybe was obvious to some, but I thought, you know, it's kind of an interesting connection. Um, And then also this year, uh, so yeah, we have like a little bit of pre-code and then this year RKO Films um, is almost, goes bankrupt, but they're essentially saved from this by two films. One is Flying Down to Rio with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Um, They were both minor players. I think this is Fred Astaire's second movie. Uh-huh. They put them together. It's a huge hit, and we know what happens with Fred and Ginger from here on out. You know, mega stars. Mega stars. Mega stars jamming on the one, jam jamming on the one. Yeah, <laughs> all uh, over the place, all over that dance floor, swirling, yeah. twirling into the future. Yep, and also in this film is the Trailblazer, first Latin American crossover star in Hollywood, Dolores Del Rio. Um, she's like super sidelined in Hollywood. She's a very interesting person, but she like leaves the U.S. because the Hayes Code fucks with her because it's like you can't kiss a white star. You can't like you have to be like this sort of tertiary character. She's known for this movie mostly because she is the first major star to wear two piece bathing suit. So like that kind of shit, (laughs) you know, like what was the name of that movie? uh, Flying Down to Rio. Oh, that's the Fred and Ginger as Fred well. Fred and Ginger. Their side, their side players. She's in it. Okay, same yeah, movie. She's in it. Got it. So they're starring, but she's a side character. But until oh, this see. point, they were minor. I see. Characters. I see. They right. get put together. It's a great pair. The other film that saves RKO is King Kong, which breaks all box office records. Sure. So people were like blown away. Right. Especially by that iconic shot of King Kong on the top of the Empire State Building. They thought, ooh, right. like, 
King Kong looks lifelike. My God, the stop motion is like making me go wild. Wild for King Kong. Wild for King Kong. I just, who was it? Oh, I watched a thing about Jurassic Park. Whole new appreciation oh. for that movie, which I've never like hated Jurassic Park, but like, you know, I've just, I watched this little documentary about it and it was sort of put it into context and the girl in Jurassic Park, the young girl, mm-hmm. she was, they were very excited about her scream. Steven Spielberg oh, yeah. likened it to Fay Ray's in King Kong. Okay. I mean, Interesting it was, little weird that side movie note. was legit terrifying. I saw it in movie theaters on opening day. It's like one of my like King first Kong. movie. No. <laughs> yes. In a past life. Uh, sure. Where I was, you know. Where you took the Isabella Rossellini, death becomes her potion. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I saw it in the theater as well. Yeah. It's like, we didn't go to the movies that often. We went to like second run movies. And I remember, and even when we did go to the movies, it was very much like a mom pops her own popcorn at home. Yeah. In her, puts it in her orange floral bag. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, you take your snacks to the movies. Like, it was just not a thing that we really did. But my dad loved, like, the second-run theater. So we'd do that. Oh, yeah. Who didn't? Oh, my God. Ours was, like, so 80s. Like, lights. Like, super dimly lit lobby with, like, all these crazy lights. It was, like, yeah. the best. I yeah. went as an adult with him because, like, I don't know if it's still there now, but it was, like, in my maybe early 20s and we Uh went back and it seemed so tiny it was like a trip yeah it was just like going there was like whoa like all the lights and like yeah the uh, theater that i worked at as a first run house megaplex turned into the second run cheap seats and now it is closed down uh yeah see i think a lot of them went away yeah yeah only so just closed that... down probably within the last six months. Okay. Because yeah. the theater I worked at in Richmond that I just went back for for that John Waters event. Oh, yeah. It, it's second run. Cool. Yeah. So I saw, like, all the weird movies after. Justin Bieber documentary. Trolls movie. Burlesque. These are the Ooh. ones I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Watching, watching I saw, a yeah, lot. Yeah. I saw Burlesque second run theater. The Hell Logan, yeah. the Logan Theater in Logan Square in Chicago. Oh, cool! Burlesque. What else did I see? What if we um, were watching burlesque at the same time? In separate cities. Yes. <laughs> we might have been. We might have been. I watched it so many times because it's like they would, pl- you know, I worked oh, there. Oh, you worked they there. They played it. Yeah, I just saw it once and I was like, okay, I'm good. It was silly as hell. Yeah. Okay, so oh, RKO yeah. is saved by King Kong. King Kong and, and Fred uh, and Ginger. Down, yep. And Dolores Del Rio. So, also, like, this is Busby Berkeley's breakout year. So, he makes Gold Diggers of 1933 and Footlight Parade, and then also 42nd Street. Mm. So, like, Musicals had become to like begun to stagnate a little bit, but his shit looked so different. Um, the way that it was shot, the way that it was staged, 
it's just you know Bugs Bunny Berkeley when you see it. It's that like kaleidoscope. It's like lots of people on stage. It's like full blown extravaganza shit. Right. So he quickly like hops to the top of the pile as far as musical choreography. And we definitely should watch one. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's happening with Busby. And then of course, you know, it's pre-code, but it's not without, you know, uh, a freaking out about sexuality because there's Mae West and people Mm -hmm. don't like all that double entendre. There's lots of protesting about her films. And then also Jean Harlow is considered too sensual in movies like Hell's Angels, uh, The Public Enemy. Some of these are Howard Hughes, who always, like, pushes the envelope. Public Enemy being also, like, a famous gangster film. And then this, which I did not know anything. I knew people thought some type of way about Jean Harlow. Uh, It's a love and hate thing. Like, she's too sexy. Right. But this year, so Hedy Lamarr stars in... Uh, the film Ecstasy, which is directed by Gustav, oh boy, Machati, Machati, Ma, yeah, something like this. Uh, and it depicts the first. I have not seen it, but I will. Mm-hmm. It depicts the first female orgasm. Whoa. Okay. From oral sex, but it's off screen. It's somehow implied, which I don't totally understand the mechanics of. Right. Like, he goes down on her, she comes, I'm sure it's, we know it because of, you know, the audio. Right. And this is often credited, I've never heard this, with inspiring the enforcement of the Hayes Code. So it's considered, like, the first yeah. official si- film censorship by the U.S. It is destroyed as it enters the United States by U.S. Customs. And... Isn't it fascinating that it's, like, the female orgasm? Especially from oral sex. Would piss some fucking dudes off. Yeah. Like, we're not allowed to come. Who cares about her? And it certainly shouldn't be from a way in which you're not going to reproduce. Exactly. It's like, oh, my God, of course this is it. You know? crazy right. I, I was shocked i had not heard that yeah. it's such an interesting why would we ever first. hear any of that nobody you know well, what i mean because i've like read about the Hayes code quite a bit and it sure. was always like a little bit blurry to me about like okay they wrote this thing in the 20s and then yeah. sometime in the 30s they actually started and it's like okay if this is like really the breaking point that makes so much fucking sense but it's like okay, we don't want the government to, like, impose their rules. And then this dude, like, gets too crazy with the Hayes Code. Sure. But it's, like, right. that it's about a female orgasm. Like, it's too perfect. Naturally. I love Naturally. it. I love it as, like, a aha, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And then less exciting firsts. <laughs> um, that's a horrifying first. Being uh-huh. censorship, but then also this year in first, the Screen Actors Guild is created. Twentieth uh, Century is formed. Uh, the first feature film is shown on TV. 
theaters open refreshment stands. So I guess like oh. no popcorn before this or like when does popcorn happen? Oh, yeah. I bet that's not a good even this year. It's like it probably happened later. Uh, I didn't think about them. Like you're sitting there for a couple hours. You don't have a beverage. Yeah. And the first drive-in theater opens. The drive-in theater thing makes sense to me, but the first yeah. feature film on television? Who had a television in 1933? I don't know what this... Should I look this up? Because I've just read this one place. No, don't look it up. I should look it up. Fine, look it up. Work it out. Jam first on it. TVs. 1927. Whoa. But okay. that's like demonstrated. The first television yeah, yeah, demonstrated. Yeah, I guess. So maybe yeah. they just like were trying it out. I don't know. I found this fact. They do actually. They do actually have. There is a scene in uh, Boardwalk Empire. Oh, so rich. Some rich Which guys is, got to watch one movie on TV. I see. I wonder what else was on there. Oh, that was my guess. I don't know. Oh, that was your guess. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. my guess. <laughs> yeah. They watched. A, it was probably the Gene Harlow orgasm. Yeah. They oh probably used it for porn. Hetty Lamar. Hetty Lamar. That's who. Which is like, she is unreal. Like, I don't know. I feel like she like pops right off the screen. I need to see this orgasm. Yeah. She pops off and pops off she the pop- screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, she was like babe of babes. And she's the one that was like invented all that shit. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, whoa, yeah. what a history. And I watched a documentary about her. Yeah. And they didn't say anything about this orgasm. I feel like I'd remember that. I, nobody wants to talk. Nobody wants to say orgasm over <laughs> and over. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just said it how many times? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying, like, it makes sense to me that nobody would would want to even cite that as being something that even existed. I mean, maybe she wasn't even into it. Who knows? Like, Who knows? She's like, I'm like a serious inventor. Right. Don't talk about my orgasm on screen when I was 19. Yeah. She's but... like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I invented on-screen orgasms. On to the next thing. <laughs> I just think it's really cool. But. Yeah. And as I'm not like... saying that I have any issue with it. I'm just saying that it oh, makes sense to me that it would not be common history. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I got. That's 1933 for you. Sounds great. And we got to... Especially that whole, like, depression part. I know. That, like, when I was reading a bit about it, I was like, okay, this all makes sense. Like, what was popular? It's like... And I'm, I know we've talked about this before. Like, violence and escapism. Or, like, right. you know, this, like, lawlessness and then, like, mm-hmm. musicals to, like, Lighten things up. It's like right. that doesn't make sense for this time period. Yeah. But holy shit, twenty five percent unemployment. Yeah. Wild. So we've got Dragnet Girl, Dragnet mm-hmm. Girl, and we've got the Emperor Jones. Yeah. Which would you prefer to talk first? I could. We could stay in the U.S. Okay. And talk let's about. Do it. Yeah. Okay. So. The Emperor Jones, 1933, released September 29th, uh, directed by Dudley Murphy, 
uh, adapted by uh, Dubose Hayward from the stage play by uh, Eugene O'Neill, starring, very importantly, Paul Robeson. We've also got Ruby Elsey as Dolly, uh, Dudley Diggs as Smithers, who is like the weird white guy lackey. Yeah. Uh, and then Freddie Washington, who played um, Undine, who is um, his mistress. Who oh, is right. Brut- okay, so Paul Robeson plays Brutus Jones. He's a Pullman porter who becomes like a brutal dictator of like a small, like unnamed Caribbean island. The Pullman porters were actually quite the celebrities in African-American, oh. in black communities. Um, During this time. And it is said that they, that Pullman is responsible for creating the black middle class. Oh, cool. Yeah. So. That seemed like an interesting world when we start there. Yeah, because it's very specific. They, Mm -hmm. they, they point it out to you that it's a Pullman car. So we open it. We've got some African drumming, dancing, going, which you know, sort of takes like a circular form and then we sort of fade into a circular sort of formation in a Baptist church. Brutus Jones shows up and he is sort of regarded, you know, as like a king. Yeah, because, and he's off to, you know, Right, do his they're thing sort of wishing him rail. well and they're very proud of him and he, he is sort of being held up on high by this congregation, you know, because he's, he's a Pullman porter. Yeah, and he seems to have, like, a very loving wife, like a sweet familial situation. Uh Right, with Dolly. He goes off on his exploits. He's away from home. He has a mistress. Uh, Very quickly, that was jarring, because I was like, okay, sweetie. So, listen, this... Okay, so two things. Um, uh, Dudley Murphy, the director, he was very interested in, like, black life. And experiences and he really really wanted to direct this movie but it was too eugene o'neill wanted way too much money for the rights way more than he could afford but then we're in the the depths of the depression so eugene o'neill is like okay i will sell you the rights i need the money and paul robeson had already played this on stage he was like right, the second correct guy he was the second guy to play it it really did actually catapult his career in theater. And then this was his first film. Dudley Murphy um, had a lot. In the U.S.? In the U.S., correct. Because we also, we have have seen him in Borderline. Um, You know, Robeson has a very contentious relationship with the U.S., which Mm -hmm. we we talked about in 1930. Yeah. So Murphy has access to RCA sound recording equipment, and he makes two short movies that become essential records of early jazz. So he's in oh, nineteen shit. in nineteen twenty nine. He made two short films, St. Louis Blues, which starred Bessie Smith, and Black and Tan, which starred Duke Ellington. And then oh. you know, and then we have The Emperor Jones, which was actually really just, it was just a one act play. It's it's only oh, twenty. Shit. It's only 20 pages. So Whoa. it's a it's like a half hour. So wow. the whole first 
51 minutes of the film is it details uh, Brutus Jones's life prior to actually where the play starts. Oh, where does the play start? The play so starts. Is he a Pullman porter in the play? I believe he is. Yeah. But we start in the um, in the palace on the island. Oh, okay. So that's where it starts. And the rest of the story is told in flashbacks, probably oh. just in monologue in the scene, in the forest scene where he's actually kind of losing his mind. Well, not kind of, totally losing yeah, no. his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but oh, yeah. I like this way better. Yeah. So, so that that whole first third of the movie like really played like a a typical movie that would be made for black audiences of the time like with speakeasies the cat fight um we get a reason for why he's in prison which is he like knifed a guy killed a guy during like a crap a a craps game you know yeah sin is being introduced to um you know what seemed like a simple like religious lifestyle right now he's like in the city like with temptation and money and all of the things right and he's like on the um he's on the he's he's basically in servitude to white people on the rich white men on on the uh as a porter so he's learning about business talking business Mm -hmm. you know talking money with these dudes um, yeah. And just sort of gets caught up in it. So he goes to prison. He escapes, kills a, a white guard, jumps on a boat, shoveling coal, sees but an that island. That was like a, right, a righteous uh, sort of killing, if you could say that. Because it's like well, that sure. he, he was being awful to the other prisoner. So it's like, yeah, okay. Like, right. It's weird, like, how it, like, fluctuates between, like, okay, you just knife that guy who's, like, kind of your friend. Yeah. Over, like, money and whatever. Right. But now he's, like, so it is, like, an interesting oscillation between, like, righteous and, you know, not. Right. Well, you know, fuck the man. He's dynamic. Yeah, he's a dynamic sort of character. Like, they're showing, right. like, when you said it's a half an hour, I was like, oh, because, like, nothing is drawn out. Like, it's very, like, a very punchy movie. Like, we're yeah. we're seeing this, we're on to the next. And I feel like right. also with Robeson's acting, like, you get, like, it really feels like a full-blown, like, a full character, even though right. we really are moving so quickly. Yeah. He sees an island, and what does mm-hmm. he say? He says, "Oh, trouble here I come." Oh yeah, trouble here I come. He says, "I love Tru- that." Trouble, trouble is my buddy. Mm-hmm. Jumps off that boat, swims to that island, and then this is where the play starts. So oh. before we get into that, we'll just talk about a few of like the suggestions to ho- for Hollywood. Oh, okay. So this movie was hacked apart because it. Mm. gratuitous use of the n-word which was very controversial in the north and the south to black and to white audiences yeah so they chopped out so much of this movie that it was just a big jumbled mess well you know what's interesting is i watched an interview with robeson's son i believe Uh uh-huh and he said that uh 
so like Robeson was very specific about like when he would allow like use of the n-word so like he right. would it in showboat where he's singing old man river he's like no right because like people are gonna pull that out and they're gonna play that and it's like right. but in the context of this film he was okay with that word yeah he 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 at first did not agree to do the stage play because he Paul Robeson was very like protective of the black community and trying to not present it in a degrading way. And he was not into the language of this play, but then decided that he did find that it would be important for the cause. Yeah. I think he was very like thoughtful and pragmatic about how to approach that like he thought that uh it was important to play like real characters but yeah i mean this dude was like full-fledged like genius human being he was a lawyer he Mm -hmm. was an all an all-star all-american football player at rutgers university um which later when he started rocking the boat aka telling people like it was about equality, they completely erased that from the Rutgers, um, Rutgers history, which I'm sure it's been reinstated now, but they literally tried to just, uh, just wipe the slate clean of this man who, uh, made so much trouble by trying to become respected. Um, he was a member, he was part of the Harlem Renaissance and, you know, that was definitely all about like uplifting black Americans rather than degrading them and showing them as stereotypes. Um, Which I know people accused him of playing stereotypes, but he didn't feel that way. Well, I think he had his reasons for doing it. Right, yeah. You know. Um, Another scene that was cut out was when um, Smithers, the kind of conniving opportunist uh, white man trader, uh, lights his cigarette. A white man lighting a black man's cigarette. Yeah. We will not show this movie if that is in this movie. Also... Uh, Freddie Washington, who played mm-hmm. Undine, she was very light skinned, and they re they reshot all of her scenes with darker makeup because it needed to look like it wasn't interracial, right? And it needed to look more like it wasn't interracial. Ugh. So. I don't think a real full version of this showed up until much later. Yeah. Maybe even like our modern day. Um, but I wonder, cause it's definitely criterion now. And I think yeah. they've done like a good job of putting yeah. it out. Like all this stuff is back in. I wonder when that happened. I think probably when they restored it in like 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now we're at the play. We're at the stage play. We've gotten to where the play starts. And 
he has sort of taken all of these things that he has learned and he is like, well, I'm the emperor here now. And he sort of manipulates uh, the people of this island by sort of, you know, he, he, he basically gets shot with a, with a blank from a gun. And they're like, oh my God, he has survived this. This is magical. Obviously he is like our emperor. So he sort of like coerces them into this by, with, with a trick, with a magic trick. Yeah, he says you can only be shot with silver bullets. You can only be killed by a silver bullet. Yeah. Yeah. But what was the mechanics of that shooting that like he had put blanks in that man's gun or something? Uh, I guess. Something. I, I didn't try to figure it out. You yeah. know, I was just like suspending disbelief. Yeah. No, I, I feel you. Yeah. I was like, I, when he said the thing about blanks, I was like, he obviously, you know, knew or had something to do with it. Yeah. It's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, he's not a great guy. No. Not a great guy. Taxing these people left and right. He's a dick. Um, He's now in, he's now basically, he does turn the tables. Like the white guy buys him. Yeah. Uh, And so, and this is prior to him becoming the emperor. And then it really just sort of flops and flops like the roles sort of reverse. And this Smithers guy really becomes in servitude to him. Well, because that Smithers guy is like all about commerce. And for Brutus, it seems like it's much more about power. Yeah. It's not just money. It's power, too. It's not just money. It's power. And uh, things go sideways. And he is like, okay, I am now done being the emperor. Goodbye. Yeah. And by sideways, I mean that like these people get hip to him and they're like, hell no. So yeah, they're going to they're after, go after him. him. Right. Yeah. And so we sort of have this like repetition of like that opening scene where the drums are playing. Yeah. Yeah, so he's in the forest jungle, which actually looks really incredible. It's yeah, a I was set. Gonna say, so like this, often like people say, oh, you know, like Pauline Kael said, like, oh, it just looks like a stage play or whatever. Like, ugh. Yeah. This movie. And right. I'm like, there's some parts, though, and specifically this ending, that I'm like, that doesn't look like a stage play. Like, It doesn't look like a stage moves. play at all. It does look like a set, but there's a difference sure, between but it in looking a lovely like, way. oh yeah, and I love that it's b- tinted blue. Yeah. For nighttime. Oh, it's beautiful. It's very, very beautiful. It's the best part of the movie. Um, for sure. This whole sequence where he's actually sort of having these like, uh, this like, he's having this like mental snap and he's got this whole dialogue with himself and he's hallucinating and we're using this, these like sort of expressionist techniques with like superimposition and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Ghosty stuff, you know. And sound. And sound. Yep. The drums are there constantly. Like ominous. Yeah. And his voice, I mean, is incredible. His voice is 
very, very, like, it's, like, a major part of him as a human yeah. being. It's instantly recognizable and, like, right. um, powerful. Yeah. And I think so, once people could hear him and, like, connect, you know, his presence to this voice, it was kind of off to the races. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. It's kind of got this expressionist thing, but it's almost like we're very used to these kinds of magic tricks now in film. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, it's like expressionism has really just sort of become like film technique. Mm, Yeah. That's sort of how I see it. You know, it's like, um, you know, uh, like everything, everywhere, all at once. Like an action movie, really and truly, um, but uses lots of expressionist techniques. But nobody looks at that and says, oh, this is an expressionist film. That's true. You know, there's lots of flashbacks. There's lots of like, um, you know. It's a weird maze of stuff, but it's not no... just reality as right. you see it. It's like evocative. Yeah, but we don't really use expressionism. Has just become a film. Those those concepts and those elements have just become part of like film vocabulary. Yeah, regularly like the tricks a director has at their disposal to Zola. Yeah, for sure. You know, totally expressionist film. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody says that. No. But it's like... when Which is neither here nor there. Just... Yeah. An observation. That's an interesting... Yeah. Point. Because it's like... Yeah, like what separates... uh, Like Pauline Kael like... Dissing this movie by being like... It just looks like a stage play. And it's like... Well, there are some things happening here... That can't happen on a stage. And it's like... Yeah. That as technology you know, progresses the ways in which you can take something from looking like a stage play to looking, you know, either more like reality or more um, well, able to conjure emotion or whatever. Yeah. Like, that's going to start happening. I mean, that set in the, in the jungle doesn't, it looks like a set, but it does not look like a stage play. It looked right. like, for to me, I thought about Legend. Like, that was all a set. That was What's like... Legend? Uh, like the 1980s um, fantasy film with Tom Cruise and Mia Sarah oh. and um, Tim Curry as the devil. I've never seen that. Do I yeah. need to see it? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. As the devil, okay. It looks it's it's a it looks amazing. Okay. Yeah, it looks incredible. Like Tim Curry does is completely unrecognizable. Huh. Yeah, oh, I'm not a sci-fi it. fantasy person. So, but I'm getting more into it. So for me, it's like a rewatch of Legend to see what my sort of movie viewing life has become as far as like me starting to embrace sci-fi fantasy. I think also because I have not yet uh, embraced that genre. um, 
I'm ready to because I've watched so much of all of the other stuff. You know, I've studied horror. I've studied dark drama, you know. And I feel like there's starting to be more and more crossover with, like, fantasy and horror in a way, you know. Yeah. That it's not, horror is not just in our world. It's, like, sort of, you know, a little bit surreal. Yeah. Which is kind of like this ending sort of uh, chapter in The Emperor Jones. It does get, we do, we are now, unlike any other part of the movie, we're in his brain. Yeah. We're thinking, he's thinking out loud for us. And we're seeing what he's seeing inside of his head. And he keeps shooting everything that he keeps seeing inside of his head, which is only just bringing the dan- the real danger closer and closer to him. He's come he's having he's coming to terms with his with with like the morality of it all, you know? Like how did I get so far off track? Yeah. Until they finally find him and then they kill him. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Okay, bye. <laughs> just kidding well i feel like i mean maybe this is just props to eugene o'neill but like it is an interesting i mean i think it's told well by this director and obviously told well by paul robeson because he has to cover a lot of territory as far as like what he's showing on screen because i you really think he's like a sweetie in the beginning and then that gets like turned around a few different ways yeah. The movie. Oh, and by you, the like, way, you follow him. Yeah. Sorry to go off on this tangent, but like that cat, that cat fight is wild. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is. is crazy. Like that is definitely some pre Hayes code. Oh ac- yeah. Action right there. Oh yeah, fair. No, it does feel like a little bit. It's a. You know, it looks some like gnarly a, shit in here. It looks like a real fight. Those women look like they are actually in a fight. Oh, yeah. But that's the funny thing about this being classified as pre-code, I guess, like, in its original version, you know? But not in what was released at the time. Right. So it's, like, funny the classifications that are made around, like, what's code and, you know, pre- and post-code. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the movie we saw is pre-code, but what does that mean as a viewer in 2022 because we don't have a code. We do have a rating system, but we don't have a code. Right. Which is like everything, if it gets rated NC-17, then it just gets edited, you know? Like, very rarely does someone choose to release an NC-17 movie. Yeah. You know, it's just like, go back and edit it. Yeah. But yeah, there's this, uh, in his monologue in the palace, there's this moment, or this you know, he goes on to, and he's talking to, what's his name? Smithers? Smithers. And he says this thing about like, I don't know, I guess I'll just have to paraphrase, but it's like stealing, like little stealing, like Smithers is doing and big stealing, like Brutus is doing. Like the little stealing gets you put in jail, but the big stealing gets you made into the emperor and puts you like, you know, in power. And I thought that that, 
as like being about what this whole film is about and like what our life continues to be about our structures continue to be about i was like holy shit that's so true like yeah if you steal a little bit like throw them in jail if you steal a lot like steal enough and you have power and usually it doesn't end with you in the jungle dead you know Mm -hmm. usually that's not at the end of the road for the most powerful but i was like this is good source material i'm sure but i had no idea that all that beginning stuff, all that setting the stage stuff, which I thought was really well done, was all brand new to this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. To make it more of a feature length. Well, it's like, were there, I'm sure there were like the opening films at like the theater or whatever. Right. Like stories, little shorts. stories. Yeah. Beyond that, yeah, I mean, people were making like artistic shorts, really. Oh, I'm sure there are. I bet you there's so much weird yeah. stuff that, like, we'll, like we'll never even know about. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. And, like, maybe a hundred people saw. Well, you know what I mean? Like, at one showing. that we're showing. talking about this week, no one saw in 1933 because right. uh, Dragnet Girls Lost Film, maybe people saw it. I don't yeah. know how that, like, the specifics. And no one saw um, this movie, like, as intended. Or as we saw oh, it. Oh, yeah, no, no. So it's like, it all depends on how time yeah. works out, shakes out, whatever. So, what other thoughts about Emperor Jones? Epaulettes. Oh, my God, he looks incredible. Epaulettes. Investing um, in wardrobe once he was emperor was an excellent move. Wardrobe, shiny boots, so shiny. Um, great, like little pants, like little. Uh, great you know, little pants. Purse. Yeah, shirtless Paul Robeson in those pants. Oh, I mean, forget it. Um, <laughs> cat fights. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, making a black woman darker. Ugh. Um. I'm just doing a little summary. Yes. Interesting dynamic between um, Smithers and Brutus Jones. Yeah. Especially. Yeah, I from the point of view. Smithers uh, looks like, but yeah. I mean, especially he's just like a smarmy, you know, smarmy dude. He oh, he looks like that guy. Oh, he's just real sweaty. Yeah. You know, real shithead. Very sweaty. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell he's like very red in the face. Yeah. But definitely Gosh. that dynamic is probably one of the most interesting considering when it was made and that it is a white man who is sort of uh, pandering to a black man. Yeah, but I mean, we had to get him out of the U.S. for that, you know. There's no way to do that otherwise. What do you mean? Like, put him on an island in the middle of nowhere? Put him on an island. I feel like that's why that... Yeah, I mean, it actually... They, he even way. does... Brutus Jones actually does reference... Well, he he even references Jim Crow. I was going to say, that's, like... It is a political film because it's, like, set in the real world of the day. Where he's yeah. talking about chain gangs and Jim Crow and all of this. Yeah, and also intended to play in the U.S. Yeah. So that's why it's kind of surprising. But obviously, I mean, they sliced and diced it. Oh, so another couple of like little facts. One, which is kind of a no-brainer, 
Paul Robeson was like, I'll do it, but we can't shoot anywhere in the South. Um, oh, yeah. And... They were going to shoot in Haiti. They were going to? Yeah, but then I think it was like a budget thing. Yeah. And so that's why they shot it in Astoria. Oh, okay. Um, and then Eugene O'Neill said, uh, I will give you the rights um, to the play, but not give. I will sell you the rights to the play, but Paul Robeson has to play the lead. Hell yeah. Okay. Insist- insisted. Yeah. Yeah. More about Paul Robeson always. Everybody needs to go look up Paul Robeson. Everybody needs to learn about Paul Robeson. He's kind of like the blueprint for civil rights. Um, his story is very fucking tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, and will probably piss you off. Yeah. Um, but recommended. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but we need to know. And yeah. celebrate what Robeson was able to achieve. Even with all of that. Right. We need to unerase. Yeah. Continue to expose. Like, good on them for putting this movie back together and putting it out. I mean. Yeah. It's the least we could do. Chosen by the Library of Congress in 1999 for the National Film Registry. Oh, good. It has almost never been shown. It has almost never been shown in its original form over its 70-year career. That's crazy. And this is an article from 2004. Oh. So. Well, we watched it. There you go. We watched it. Not so you don't have to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But because you should. (laughs) Yeah, you should. It's a good movie. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Dragnet girl. Dragnet girl. So we're going to Japan. Um, Here we go. Oh, God, I didn't look up how to say his first name because I know how to say his last name. Yashu Iro uh, Ozu um, was, is the director of this film, Dragnet Girl. It stars... Oh, God, I totally didn't look up names. Uh, Kin Uyo Tanaka... Uh, Joji Oka and Samuko Mizukubo. Um, so Ozu is like totally regarded as like one of the best Japanese filmmakers ever. Um, he was making tons of movies before this one, which was released uh, April 27th, 1933. So he made more than 20 films before this. They're not all features, but he made a shit ton of silent films. Um, and he was super resistant to talking pictures. Um, he'll wait until 1936 to do one, like Charlie Chaplin did, like who was similarly very resistant. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah, so he'll make six more silent films after this one before incorporating sound. He waited until 1936 to make a talking picture, but this wasn't because, like, the Japanese had started to incorporate sound. But they might have put off introducing sound a little bit longer than the U.S. and elsewhere because they had this hybrid form of sound cinema where performers would narrate and comment on silent films live. So they would voice all the actors and they'd also have musical accompaniment. So they had this whole culture of 
cinema that was like working very well for them that incorporated like very dynamic sound. So like having films that had synchronized sound that they were recording to create a film like seemed, you know, kind of besides the point is what it seems like. Um, they were like, Ozu wasn't the only, so this is a gangster movie based on his love of American gangster movies. He wasn't the only Japanese director that was highly influenced by American cinema, but they just like weren't taking to sound at this point yet. So like Mm -hmm. just a little different trajectory. Um, So there was like this highly theatrical viewing experience that was happening, but there was a borrowing from different genres that was then filtered through, you know, Japanese culture. Cause like we're not in America in this movie. We're in Japan. So it's not like a full borrowing of, it's not like mimicry. It's something else. So yeah, this movie is a gangster film, but later, and like maybe we'll do another Ozu movie because Uh, later he's completely different. So like, if you know Ozu movies, it's like in this movie, he's doing all these like optical tricks and like swirling around like the camera movements are crazy it's like there's these little vignettes like characters aren't even on screen and he's like swooping around like a tea kettle like it's yeah. very like okay Beautiful. now we're do- looking at this <laughs> it, it it um reminded me of um sunrise oh yeah it definitely had murnau influence it did feel a little bit Murnau. I don't know if it was like, I will, I love this movie, but I'm sure it was different at the time when it was played in cinemas, which I don't know the logistics of like this being a lost film, like how, what kind of reception it had. But like, it felt a little schmaltzy with the piano music and the like, oh, now we're looking at this. I was like, I don't know if I need to see this. But like, I did like watching him move the camera. Usually he's just like, mm-hmm. Which is very effective, like, where it's just, like, he's very um, straight on, low, and wide. I And you just see everything. Yeah. I mean, I always love, yeah, low is is so good. Lots mm-hmm. of low. Lots of, um, lots of repetition of those weird things where they are in action, where, like, hats fall on the ground a few times throughout this yeah. movie. Um, yeah i like that stuff i think what i'm thinking of as schmaltzy is like there's literally like you know like a a swooping shot around like some shit that's just on a table that i'm like do i even need to see the shit that's on the table right now i just like the shit that's on the table because i feel like it's like uh informing the space and giving it character and is like the affects of the people that live there that's yeah. how I just always love that it's kind a, of stuff. A though. Choice. Choices. It feels a little masturbatory to me always, but also there was like this like sort of I'm sure this wasn't the original soundtrack. It's like this sort yeah. of silly piano music playing, which like yeah. usually in silent film I can be like, yeah, whatever with this. But then when we're also like slowly going around a table, I'm yeah. like, okay. But like I'm going to say, I yeah. love this fucking movie. I'm just, sure. that's my only thing where I'm like, okay. Yeah. God, you're such a hater. Yeah. Um, so he, like, when he starts going into movies that had talking, he strips all of that away. And that makes sense to me. But it's uh-huh. like, 
he loses some of that. And I, like in my head, I was just thinking, having done research on this before I watched the movie, I was like, I'm okay with that. You know, like looking at it through that lens where I'm like, oh yeah, we get this, but like, I don't need it kind of feeling. But I get like, he was trying to, he couldn't have sound. He didn't want to have sound, but he needed right. to like build out a world without it. Right. So there's that. It is again, another like silent film that does not, I mean, we're so, we're, we're very removed from what silent film was because we've, well, we as a people have had. We don't make it anymore. Well, we're still use we're, we're, I guess what I'm going, what I'm saying, sort of like repeating, like how film language, like with this expressionism, you know, it's like we're, Mm -hmm. we've, we as a human race have been using film now for a while. So it's shot in a different way than you would see a silent film from like, you know, 1920. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You wouldn't even using, using, using more techniques, using more, you know, talk about like shit looking like a stage play. Yeah. This does not, none, none of this stuff looks like a stage play. No, it's, it's not at all. I'm like, they're shooting on the street, you know, like it's all yeah. very human, right? Like up close and personal type of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But I like, I think it's very different from his other work, which is interesting to be that intentional. It's like, obviously he's experimenting here with doing, and he had been, but then he makes the conscious choice to be like, oh yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not like, doing genre films. I'm going to do films about like marriages and family. Yeah. And I'm going to shoot from, you know, three feet off the ground wide. Right. So you can see like everything. And this is what I'm doing now. So like, it's just to be so sure of yourself. I'm always so impressed of that sort of defining, Mm -hmm. but it's like at this point he was, and it's interesting that there's this like clear line between talking and sound. It's not like, you know, there's not a lot of like interchange in the middle. It's like this or that. And yeah, like I wonder, I feel like I'm going to see different films differently now by like different, I don't know, because like you think of like Godard as like borrowing from American film and like sort of recreated in his own way. And now we've seen this um, in a silent film and it's like, Seeing, it's kind of interesting to see someone, what they take from something that you know well. It's like I've seen a million American gangster movies. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so to see, like, what someone from another culture, like, st- strips out. It's, like, the same as, like, seeing Godard, like, what he liked about film noir. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like, it's not the same thing I'm seeing in it from like within American culture. But then we're also looking at it all these years later. So it's like a whole other layer right, of a shit. Whole, it's like, yeah. whoa. Oh, there's a whole crazy. history of things that have happened cinematically, yeah, socially, see whatever. It like it was intended in to be seen, like I said with the music. And right. we can't see it as someone would see it who had only seen films from, you know, nineteen thirty three and before. Right. Oh my God, it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I really wanted to hear that band that was playing at the party. Oh yeah. It must have been See? they must have been a jazz band. It was very seemingly yeah, a jazz band. 
but it was that piano music. Oh, I did not like the piano music. I, I should have put see, something else on. I and know. I saw, I saw that there was this band Coupler that like did some live scoring to it. Yeah. Some years ago, and mm-hmm. I was like, should I put them on? But then I like. I didn't know what they had played, and then I didn't like the song I had picked from them. So I was like, forget it. We're listening to piano music. Yeah, sometimes you just got to go with it and then just tune it out. I mean, yeah. I when it when it first when we first dove in, I really was same way. But then I was just like, you know what? Cool your jets, buddy. Just, yeah. watch, just watch the movie. Yeah. No, get, I just get I over it. Do that as well. <laughs> Yeah. So the only other thing that I want to make sure I touch on is the cool history of our dragnet girl herself. So Kanuyo Tanaka, because a huge star in Japan, she's called the Japanese Idol Lupino, um, oh. which we need to talk about Idol Lupino. But yeah, she's in 10 Ozu films. And then she worked with like every major Japanese director. Mm-hmm. Um, she made a shit ton of movies. But then she makes her directorial debut in 1953. It's a movie called Love Letters. And then she makes another film in 1955, The Moon Has Risen, Mm. which is actually like co-scripted with Ozu. Mm. So like she does that and then she makes four more films. So like she's killing it. That's similar to um, our friends from Mars. Oh. Queen of Mars. Yeah. Yeah, his 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 wife who played the Queen of Mars, she went on to direct as well. Oh damn. Yeah. Don't you remember episode 1? I'm like God. trying to remember it. I'm sure I do a bit, but Anyway, that's just a cool parallel. Detail. Damn. Yeah. So yeah. The plot of Dragnet Girl. Yeah. Is, you know, it's uh-huh. pretty simple. Uh, Tokiko is a typist, and she's the girlfriend of, like, he's a gangster, but he's not, like, a boss, you know? Yeah. Uh, everybody in this movie, it is, like, babes all around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Babes all around. With, like, Very cool attractive expressive people. faces. Very cool clothes, too. Oh, Yes. Which I actually was, I, I, I got, I got very interested in the clothing just because, um, Dragnet Girl, she was all dolled up wearing like the most beautiful 1930s dresses. And yeah. then Boxer Boy's sister was still wearing a kimono. Mm, yes. No. Cause I think there was like a division there, right? There was a division, but I don't think at this point in Japanese history, it was, I think it was a choice. To be traditional, sort of? Yeah. Because we're in the, everything has transitioned starting in like 1867 in like the Meiji period when like traditional, like shogun kind Mm. of stuff and kimonos, like we start getting into like Western attire which starts with like uniforms. Okay. Like military uniforms, shit like that. Which were would look western? Like not. Right, like not yeah. traditional Japanese, well, from a certain period clothing. 
Yeah. Japan is sort of ushering itself into a modern, more westernized age. And of course, there's the people who are like, this is disrespectful to our culture. You know, it's, yeah. it's sort of the same thing as like, well, I don't want to use sound. Yeah. 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 So. It, yeah, but she's a young woman. So that's an interesting choice. But she does seem very traditional. Right. Because the Meiji period lasted until 1912, but we're well into like 1930. Yeah. And also Dragnet Girl and Homeboy, they're not rich. They're not rich because he's, yeah, they're he's just like a small like swindler, small time crooks. Who... Yeah, she's a swindler too. That's like the oh, interesting for sure. part. Like yeah, she's, I love it. It's not like, it doesn't feel like mafia. It feels like small right. time for him. And for her, it's like just little tricks that she's going to be like involved in when they come up, when she like can scheme. Right. Like see an opportunity and scheme. So she is like the president son of the company she's working for is mm-hmm. after her and she gets like a ruby ring from him and then like you know yeah he's just gifting like, her jewels yeah so she's like taking stuff and seeing like where she can get um and then this like younger dude hiroshi joins the gang uh he like wears joji he's like admires joji and he's like uh-huh. wearing him down until he can join this gang and he's just like a silly little dude like Mm -hmm. he has no business being involved so like his sister kazuko who is who we're talking about that's the traditional right appearing young woman she appears like they all seem to be very young like who works at a record store yes that cool ass record store which reminded me of in 1933 cactus flower sick yeah, cactus. It reminded me of cactus flower because they had the little yeah. sound, the listening booth. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So fucking yeah. cool. And she's very cute. Uh, That's why I was and, like so confused. I was like, "Is this her uniform for work?" Right, but then she's at home and she like has made dinner for her little brother. Yeah, like she seems to be like maybe she's in her early twenty. He's like he's supposed to be in school and he's not going to school. But right. like their parents aren't around, so like yeah, she's like the caregiver. Yeah, so she had like made him dinner and she's in her like very traditional. Yeah, and she's very um, sweet and is very like she's very sweet. Stay out of trouble. Yeah, but she can't, you know. It's tough to keep him out of trouble. He's like very, he's like seduced by, you know, the pool table and uh-huh. uh, the suits, the cute suits that all those do- gangster dudes yeah, are totally. wearing. Like, I mean, you want to get involved. But Joji is thinking that he wants to get involved with Hiroshi's sister, it seems. Yeah. And so Tokiko, like, she's got to do something about this. Yeah. And I should, I, I, I love, I feel like there's a few times when, Someone says, or maybe it's uh, Tokiko when she says, "I should slap you." Yeah. When she says she's that, so to that good. Other I get why woman. she was a total star. <laughs> yeah, totally. She's amazing. She says to that other fancy chick, "I should slap you." Yeah. <laughs> maybe she should see. I mean, I don't know. Kazuko's not doing anything. She is like, I think she gives. He's very sweet to her. Yeah. So she's like enjoying the sweetness, but she's not trying to do anything. She's not trying. She's not looking for trouble. No, she's not necessarily looking to get involved with that dude. No. She's not and- wanting. She does not want to get like up in Joji's business because no. she's suspicious of what his business is. 
Which is why she doesn't yeah. want her younger brother hanging out with him. Yeah, but it seems like he is kind of it sounds like we're gossiping about people. I mean, it's kind of a gossipy movie. At the end it of is. it, I was like, okay, this is like a little like love, like fun story. This, there's like very little gangster. Uh, there's no shooting. There's no like. It's very chaste. Like very in that, li- like there's one shooting. Who gets shot? Choji. Oh yeah. Well yeah, but like there's not like gangster. It's not shoot em at up. this point. There's no like da 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 rat da tat machine no. guns. No. No, we do not see any of that. Yeah. That's way. That's way later. I um, do love the scene where. Um, Dragonette girl confronts sweet sister. Sweet, that I like this. Uh, <laughs> this way of talking about them. Yeah, I. That's saw... my favorite scene in the movie when she pulls out that gun, and then yeah. sweet sister is just like, "All right," she doesn't get scared. She's just sort of like, "I mean, if you're gonna shoot me, then fucking shoot me." For sure. She's like yeah. resigned to it. She's like, "I can't." stop a bullet so if you're gonna do it then do it you know when i was reading about this movie people say that this scene and maybe other scenes between dragnet girl and sweet sister that there's an unmistakable homosexual subtext i also got that as well and i loved it but i also got that it could just be incredibly you know it doesn't necessarily have to be homosexual she could just flat out they could just flat out like admire each other and have just uh, it seems like tokiko has like a huge crush on her yeah and maybe it's not sexually driven but she does say later that she's like infatuated with her like she says that to joji but it's like you can't tell if it's like her playing into like like if you can't beat them join them it's like I don't think it, I think it rarely works that like, if you're jealous of another woman and you just like talk shit, like, well, I don't think she, that ever works. <laughs> yeah. But then she mild, she mild, um, single white females her. Oh yeah. Well, she Not like, really. wants she, something that she has. Yeah. She's like. What Joji's attracted to, which is her, you know, sweetness. Uh, yeah. Her wholesomeness. Yeah. Her non-swindling ways. Yeah. But she can't go back to that. Though she no. sort of plays with the idea of it for a while. But there is, um, so Ozu is said, like, some people think he was a gay man. Okay. Just because he was a lifelong bachelor. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. And that he was maybe expelled from school for writing a love letter to a male student. Hmm. So there is, like, if you layer those two things, then maybe. Sure. There's a little bit of something going on. Yeah. But no, I love it. I mean, it's all, yeah. It can be whatever you want it to be. Totally. You know, like the implication is most certainly there. Yeah. You know. For sure. So it's, I think it's whatever you want. I thought that she, like, I, I felt a little spicy, but what I was thinking was that in her swindling sort of, vibe she was like playing with everybody not necessarily like playing with oh she wasn't necessarily feeling emotions that were of her own she was like doing what she thought she should do in that moment to like get what she wanted yeah you know like having a bit of fun yeah she's a brat 
Oh my god. There's she so many just brats like full of in glee film. all the time. I feel like there's a brat in almost every movie, and I feel like we say the word brat in almost every episode because there's like a brat in like every movie. There's no brat in Emperor Jones, unless it is Brutus in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but not a full on brat like Tokiko. No, she's. I she's should slap herself. you. I'm going to get that tattooed on my hand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should slap you. <laughs> And she was not angry when she said it, which is like, she never gets angry. She gets like no. sly and like yeah, knivy, she, but yeah, that angry which, is so interesting. Which made me keep thinking, I just kept thinking like, what is she going to do? Because know, she just gets she that like little sideways smirk on her face where you're just like, oh shit. I'm what is she going to do? I'm inspired by her confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm inspired by her confidence and her dresses. Oh yeah, I would wear all her outfits, um, all of them, and I know and her friend that she like wants that. to slap. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? So Joji throws to T- Tokiko out, um, but she comes back. Of oh course. yeah, they do. This is so dramatic. They it's split. such a melodrama. Yeah. Yeah. And I was noticing all the set design in their tiny apartment. Yeah. There were so many like cute little details, like the boxing poster, because they're like spending time at a boxing gym. So I'm like, oh, someone like, oh, really, yeah. like, made that little boxing poster and like just like really thoughtful about like this tiny space. But there were also, and I didn't go back and research them, but there are a handful of um, movie posters. Yeah, there's like throughout. a bunch of cool ephemera on the walls and yeah. tables. I, and I feel like they're most certainly like. You know, on purpose referencing filmmakers that uh, Ozu likes. Oh, yeah. Props to the production designer. Yeah. It was very good. Uh, so, yeah. Meanwhile, there's a subplot of Hiroshi has stolen money from where his sister works. Right. And, I mean, I guess it's not a subplot. It's very integral to the plot. But, yeah. Uh, so Joji and Tokiko rob Tokiko's boss and give the money to him, to Hiroshi, so they can pay the money back that he stole. Right. And then, of course, they this instigates some police interaction. So they're running from the police. Right. Tokiko's like, please, can we stop this and go to jail? We'll just go to jail for a little while. It's fine. Yeah, there's a back uh, and forth. There's like this push and pull of like, Tokiko, like, trying to convince Joji, like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Can we please just, like, let's just go straight. And then right. it does that's, seem like, hard that's for like, them like, to part get of away. The big, that's part of, like, the big fight. And he kicks her out. And he she goes over to Boss's son. And she's, like, maybe thinking that she just wants to marry this guy and be, like, a kept woman. Oh, yeah. There is that. There's, like, a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's then, been going on that, like, this conversation is not the first time they've had this conversation, but he right. was gonna, you know, it seemed like he wanted to go straight for um, our sweet sister. Right. But yeah, like, she's looking for ways out, and she's, like, obviously not happy with the way that things are. We know that for sure. So then they decide, they do decide, they do sort of, like, come together and decide, we'll just do this one last thing for mm-hmm. this boy and for Hiroshi and sweet sister and we'll 
will will get them they square. They love sweet sister. Totally, and they love Hiroshi too. So they're like, let's they get. They sort of do. They sort of do. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. If they would, I don't feel like they wouldn't like. I feel like they feel they can see themselves in him. Sure. So they got. They want to get them squared away, and then they're like, and then we'll be done. Yeah. We'll go move somewhere else, and we'll just be completely different people. But then they almost get, or they, you know, they get caught. Yeah, they get caught. They get so got. There's no one last job because you're right. about to get caught. Mm-hmm. So she's like, instead of trying to run and then be like, you know, fugitives, which seems awful. I fucking would hate that so much. Ew. And she doesn't want to do it. So God, she's like, how on, exhausting. Oh, yeah. I'm listening to this podcast, uh, Mother Country Radicals, about the weather uh, underground. Uh-huh. And, the, you know, they go underground. And it sounds terrible. Ugh, boring. To me. It's just, it's boring, but it's also, like, fucking <laughs> scary all the time. Like Anxiety. Their, their kids knew, like, okay, right. if this happens, then this is happening. And it's like, oh, boy. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah. She's like, come on, dude. This is the end of the road. And he's like, no. So she shoots him. So this is our one shooting. Yeah, but she shoots him in like the, in the leg. Yeah, yeah. But she needs to But you don't down. know that. I mean, I didn't know where she shot him. Oh, shit. Yeah, no. He doesn't I die. Thought, no, Sorry. he doesn't die. I'm not being clear. So when like that are, you know, our last shot. I mean, they is... weren't being clear. They, okay, sure. <laughs> she shoots We're... the gun and you're like, is he going to die? What's going on? And then he starts limping and you're like. Oh, he's just Well, limping. you know she has a plan. She does love him. For oh, all for her sure. flaws, she loves him. Yeah. She's a brat, but she, you know, doesn't want her to lose her man. And so that's why she doesn't go with the boss's son or any of that. Because it's like, well, I still love this fucker. Yeah. So let's go. Yeah, and if she wanted to, she probably go. could run off with sweet sister if she wanted. Oh, but he loves her too. Because at the end, they're like embracing as he's shot. And it's going to yeah. be fine. You yeah, know, they're going to go to jail. Or yeah, that's what she says. She's like, we're young. We'll just go away for a few years. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sure that never works out, but it does. It did sound romantic at the time. Well, sure. Yeah, it's like kind of a pipe dream. You know, then it's yeah, like you're, it's... you're, you're, you're going to have to give up that wardrobe. That's true. But it prison's probably easier for her. And it's like for a righteous cause, though I'm not sure how that's going to end up. Yeah. With Hiroshi. Is Hiroshi okay? Probably not. I mean, we could speculate all day yeah. long. Same way that we did same way that we did with um uh, Laura, Laura, Laura Dern's characters. Oh yeah. How yeah. we speculated about uh shit, I can't remember her name. I remember, I remember Ruth Stoops. Ruth's yeah. Oh fuck. And yeah, uh either. Yeah, but Smooth, smooth, smooth talk character. You know, it's like we we did the same thing where we were like, well, what happens after the credits end? I know. Yeah. Okay, I mean, well, you, I'm you know. saying that okay. Dragnet Girl. Yeah. She does. Mm, am I going to be a pessimist? Because, like, I feel like the women always, like, they'll hold on to the dream. But, like, the dudes. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like dudes always go for longer, so maybe they will get back together because she'll wait for him, but I feel like he'd probably get out and, like, find fucking somebody else. 
yeah, another and sister of Hiroshi. I situation. mean, you're going you're going to prison. I mean, I have no concept of that in America, and I certainly don't have one of what prison would be like in 1933 in Japan. But oh yeah, I don't know. Who are you meeting in prison? Well, that's not, what I'm not saying. people he... who are trying to make you go straight. Oh, right. He's going to get worse. If he was hesitant about uh, getting straight when he's like seemed like a very low level gangster that it's like there were no repercussions for him leaving and he's not even rich. He would just have to get like a job. Okay, dear. And not hang out at the boxing gym all day. Dear Ozu. Yeah. (laughs) Could you please make Dragnet Girl part two? I would watch these characters all day. I know. It's like a little soap opera. Yeah, this could have been a series, a very enjoyable series. Very, very. Ugh, they're cuties. Yeah. I love her. I need to see more of her. God. Lots more. A series, but, like, shoot it now, but keep it silent. Oh. They could talk. No. In my opinion. Oh, no. Look how much fun we're having (laughs) talking about this silent film. I know. It was great. Oh, my God. They were so good at it. Nobody needs to talk anymore. I know. As we talk. (laughs) Excuse (laughs) me, ma'am. We're on a medium that's all about talking, only exclusively about talking. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I get it. It's overrated. Talking's overrated. Talk, talk, talk. Blah, blah, blah. I should slap you. Well, uh, (laughs) I should. What else have you been uh, watching and hearing? Good stuff. Like uh, so I, I did have another, like, go back around and watch Homecoming. Oh, yes. Which is just so fucking good. I Didn't we watch that together? Yeah. I mean, I never watched oh, the I whole thing it. all the way through. But then this time around, I got very obsessed with it. And I watched it all the way through. Put it back on, like the next day, and then have, mm-hmm. and then also have listened to the live album. Um, I just love the the um, the drum line, like Hell like yeah. collegiate, like band. Um, what's it called? Arrangements of all of the songs. Yeah, um, it's like and, so perfectly put together. I don't even. It boggles my mind. Yeah, just incredible. And like, um, you know, even when I was like watching all of those Beyonce videos while I was researching um, Emperor Jones, uh, I was just like, wow, like Beyonce took a while to get uh, it really with Lemonade, you know, like groundwork with with the Beyonce album, which is all just like, mm, you know, pretty fluffy, sexy, whatever. It's got video some bangers, album. but it's not like the depth. It's not lemonade, which is like now we're going to actually talk about blackness, and I'm going to talk about my experience as an American person in this country. So, yeah, you know that's where homecoming goes, um, and then I feel like you can continue to see that in the things that she's continuing to do, like the Oscar performance. Um, also watched a movie called Master, which is a thriller, kind of ghosty, um, about a woman played by Regina Hall, 
who is the first master, first black woman master at um, this like, you know, it's probably a made up college. And that also parallels the experience of a first year freshman um, black girl, black student who is put in a room that is considered the haunted room where in the 1960s, a black girl committed suicide and they blame it on a witch, but there's all kinds of stuff that is like very much leans towards like the black experience and white owned spaces, very, very, very white owned spaces and um, how those spaces are trying to just sort of like performatively say, look, we have a black person. Yeah. Um, Really, really liked it. Um, Written and directed by a black woman. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know their name. Terrible. But I love Regina Hall in it. I think it is really fucking great that she is allowed to not be that goof-a-doof from the scary movies series, which she's fucking fantastic at. But, like, come on. She gets to be a real person now, too. Yeah, have range. You know. Yeah. So, very good. Very good. I recommend. I don't think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people kind of lump it into as like some sort of like get out sort of knockoff but loved it oh really okay hi yeah i mean i I don't feel like it's got it got great reviews um also saw 50th anniversary screening at the loft cinema here in tucson of pink flamingos oh shit which i haven't watched in a while and have never seen on the big screen and is yeah. just still wild, wild, <laughs> yeah. wild. You know, like familiar with every single concept of that film, but just am like, just still astonished, mostly all of the time by John Waters' dialogue. You know, yeah. lines, oh, yeah. lines such as, he's <laughs> been castrated, his penis is missing, which is <laughs> literally just Mink Stoll giving you the definition of castrated. Yeah. Um, no, I love. Yeah, it's so that's true. fucking like, good. Like I love how John Waters like talks and how he writes dialogue yep. for other people. And then I also saw huh, Crimes of the Future, the new Cronenberg movie, which oh, wow. was also just fucking fantastic. Mm. I loved it so Damn, much. Okay. I loved it so much. I loved it. It was like. Uh, it's so dark, but it's also not dark. I don't know. It's it's a future world. You don't know how far into the future we are. We're talking about human evolution and how we are evolving uh, in a sort of climate change world. Um, the politics, like body politics and what it means to be a person who is evolving and like purity of the human race. Um, oh. and, uh, uh, Kristen Stewart is in it. I loved her so much. She was so good. Everybody yeah, is great. Everybody good, is good. great. Yeah. And like, uh, Cronenberg just creates this world that I really loved being in. I, I feel am. like people would probably really think that that would be a weird statement, but I don't know. I loved this world. There was something comforting about it, and I can't explain why. 
maybe I'm just, maybe I just wish that I could live in a world where there was more apathy. I don't know. Oh. So. God, I need to see that. I'm so intrigued. Yeah, I got, I saw it. I saw it um, the last day that it played at the loft and uh, I became a member at the loft. So I have been going a lot and it's just right down the street from my house. And I just Mm -hmm. really appreciate going to the movies. Oh my God, I haven't been. So in a while. Yeah. Um, so clearly I was very excited about all three of those movies. Oh, it's so fun to be excited. I know. I love being excited. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Makes me want to have an off screen orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Oh, mine is not nearly I have been working an ungodly amount. So I have not been to the movies in quite a while. But I got into... So I watched The Staircase dramatic show. The real, you know, not the real one. Not the documentary um, with everybody when it was like so buzzy. But then when my friend was here, we rewatched all of the documentary, which is like insanely long it's like 10 parts or something wait I don't the remember, stair like the staircase how... is that with tony collette so the staircase is with tony collette and colin firth the show on hbo yeah but then there was a documentary that it's like based on okay from like maybe i don't know like 2010 or something oh god I true crime know. true crime but it's like seen as like one of the best like Oh, so 2005. Um, it seems like one of the best ever. It's made like by a, you know, acclaimed French director, which I feel like always is going to elevate things a bit. And it's like, it is like, it really gets into it. Um, I had forgotten like a lot of facts from it. And it's like, they gave them a lot of access. So like, he's like, the documentarians are like there with the families. Anyway, like this is like, whatever. Um so I, like, watched all ten parts with Star and just got, like, bent out of shape even more than the show did. But then also, so Parker Posey is in it. Uh, oh. And so it made me watch Party Girl. Yeah. And then, which is so good. I love it. I <laughs> rewatch like, that one all the time. In the library. And it's, like, as a child of a librarian, too, it's so fun to, like, be in oh, a library. Because yeah. cool. I, like, grew up in a library, basically. But, yeah. like. Her, just her presence is so fun. And she is really good in The Staircase, the HBO show. Um, she plays this, like, awful lawyer. And it's, like, wild how, like, much... The Staircase show really, now having rewatched the document documentary, it's, like, they cast a lot of people that just look exactly alike or, like, fully, like, transform into the real people, like, that yeah, exist. That's cool. It's crazy. Um so it was fun to watch it like that. But then I also needed a comfort movie. So I watched You Got Mail. And, of course, Parker Posey's in that. So I've just been, like, having oh, a really? Parker Posey moment. Yeah, she plays, like, the um, girlfriend of Tom Hanks. Oh, interesting. I want to so see she, that. It's, like, a minor role, but she's great in it. And then, like, yeah, I watched You Got Mail and When Harry Met Sally. So I, I... Like, really... You can see where I'm at because I'm yeah. like sad girly now. Oh man, maybe we need to Parker Posey it up for a mini episode. Yes, I've been Parker Posey. Character actress. 
character actor. She's sorry. so good. Yeah. So I love Scream 3, which is probably like everybody's least favorite mm. installation. And Parker Posey is in that. Okay. But I just think it is like the one that makes fun of itself the most. And oh. it's like takes place in Hollywood and they're making a... Um, they're making a movie. They're making a sequel to Stab, which is the movie that is about all of the happenings in Scream. Oh my God. Meta. Yeah, totally. Always with that. And what is her name? It's not Emily Blunt. I need to look it up. Sorry. Um... I just okay. Sorry, this is a cool. Someone little, notable. Yeah, Emily Mortimer. Who the hell is that? Emily Mortimer. She is a British actress, and she was in. You love her. I don't love her, but she's oh. playing. She's <laughs> she's playing the character who is supposed to be Nev characters, Nev Campbell's character. Oh, because like Nev wouldn't do it. Oh no, she's playing it in the movie. She's playing. She's playing Nev. She's playing Sydney Prescott. Okay, got it. Who? Well, she's playing that character in the movie that they're making about Sydney Prescott's experience. Okay. More meta. Got it. Um. I think. So, in real life, Nev Campbell has declined to return to the Scream series for Scream 6. Mm-hmm. So apparently they're casting Emily Mortimer as her. Oh. So it's like they're just fucking with it all over the place. Oh. Why wouldn't Nev Campbell return? She has stated that the deal did not reflect what she has brought in value to the series okay then i back her yeah me too hell yeah and parker posey in scream 3 plays gail weathers aka i feel like i've seen clips of this yeah it's very hilarious yeah which is her deal exactly so yeah we should eventually do a parker posey episode because i just like I love watching her on screen no matter what she's doing. She's in a... Even um, when she's an infuriating lawyer in The Staircase. She's in a Hal Hartley movie, too, called Faye Grimm. Oh, I don't know that one. I don't... I mean, I remember seeing them review it on Siskel and Ebert. Oh, really? Which is very random. But I never saw it. Yeah. I thought I'd seen most Hal Hartley movies, but I don't know that one. Yeah. Oh, when we did the Hall Hartley episode, I might have seen just like yeah. a blurb about it. We yeah. Watch it. Well, shit. So what else? Okay. Did you watch? Have you watched anything else besides those? I've been watching some of those like uh, Cocteau because now I'm obsessed with him. Yeah. Already was like pretty into him, but then The Blood of a Poet, like kind of, I was just like, damn it. Yeah. Like everything this dude is, I love. Uh, yeah. So I've been watching some shorts. But yeah, like, no, like just 
rewatching trash out of like pure anxiety, not making it to the movies, and then like some weird staircase. Yeah. Parker Posey journey. I was wicked depressed last week and I was sitting on the couch and I said to myself, I just want to go to where Antonioni is. Oh yeah. I didn't put anything I didn't put anything I didn't put anything on, but I was comforted by the thought of being in that world. Okay. So like when you're For me it feels good. Because it looks so incredible. So to sink more into the depression of it all? No, I felt like it would be comforting. I was very comforted by those films. I but feel it's like, like he's my... so depressive. I know, but it's. I feel like it's kind of like the same as like Crimes of the Future, where it's just like it's opposite you feel day. Understood. It's opposite day for me. You know, like I want to be here. Like I do not feel dark in these lands. I feel supported. Yeah, I guess, like, when I'm depressed, though, I mean, I watched a bunch of murder shit, so I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but, like, I go to, like, um, something kind of sweet and maybe a little bit empty because I'm, like, I'm thinking too much. I need to think less and think that the world is fair and adorable and everything works out the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Which, you know, whatever. Well, yeah. But also, like, I I feel like what I'm... Because I'm stressed mostly because of work. So it's, like, it's going to all be solved, right? So, like, sure. in that case, it's, like, I just don't want to, like, solve any more problems in a day. So, like, I can't watch something that challenges me in, like, any sort of way. It either has to be something I've already seen or something that's very, like, easy anyway. Like... No terrible surprises. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I can't, like, m- munch on media too much right Oof, now. No way. Not my jam. But I'm hoping to munch again soon, because I would like to, you know, <laughs> use my Metrograph membership and, like, go see some shit. It would be nice. Yeah. But I'm exhausted. Yeah, go to the movies. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. I love a midday. Movie I just by love myself. I love going to the movies by myself. I feel like I have there's pressure when I go with oh, someone yeah. else. Like Oh my god, especially if you like recommended it, my god. Yeah, you're like, "Oh my god, are they enjoying this?" Totally. Uh. Yeah. I definitely prefer to see movies alone. Yeah, if I go with someone, I just tell them, I just say, do you want to sit in the front or the back? And then they'll be like, I want to sit in the back. And then I'll be like, okay, I'm going to sit in the front. Bye. Oh, where do you sit in a movie theater? I sit middle, but to a side because I like to have an easy exit. I have switched it up a lot lately because I've been going so much. Yeah. I used to sit way back in the middle. Okay. Now I sit like in the middle of like the front section or on one of the sides. I like to sit on the side. Unless it's like totally empty, then I'll sit in the middle. Yeah. I sat on the side when I went and saw Chud. Mm. Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Yeah. Set in New York City. Watch your feet. 
They come out of oh. man. They come out of manholes. Ew. Yeah. God, you can watch some shit that I do not. And that's not a gay pride reference. Okay. Talking about the literal manholes in the street. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this episode's going to come out after Pride, but, you know. Well, yeah. I feel you. I feel you. I hope that doesn't happen to me anytime soon. You or your dog that you're walking. Sure. Well. Anything else? No, there's nothing else. Well, you're Paul. You're, uh, you don't want to go in there on Instagram. That's right. And you're Caroline. And you're at womanhood yeah. on Instagram, et cetera. And we're at release underscore pod. Uh, and also at www.release.pictures. And that was 1933, et cetera, et cetera. It sure was. Go watch them both. Yeah, or I'll slap you. Or I'll slap you. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. <laughs>